reading the, the news, while you know that this would not be a good time this week to be in Montpelier. They are into like 15 feet of water. Uh, so it's just amazing how quickly things can change. We need to be very aware of that, folks. Life can change at any moment. And the great thing we have as Christians is Jesus Christ never changes. And no matter what the circumstances are, he's always going to be the same for us. So praise God for that. All right, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We've called this series in James uh, to remind you the gospel in action. That is on the heading of your outline if you have an outline this evening. And the the whole idea of that is that as we uh, live out the practical uh, application that James gives us in this book, even if we speak no words, and we should, but even if we speak no words, if we live out the application of what James is telling us here, people are going to see Jesus Christ in us, and people are going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. It'll shine through so clearly in our lives that people will be drawn to him through the display that they see in us. Now, to that end, we're not even through all of chapter 1 yet. And James has zeroed in on what he believes and how the Spirit has led him to believe that living out the gospel comes most of all by hearing and doing the Word of God. That's how it happens. In fact, the last time we were in this book, uh, we saw that a person who who lives out the Word of God in their lives shall be blessed in his deed. God promises blessing. There is no better way to gain the blessings of God than to live out his salvation plan for the ages to those with whom you live with and work around and have contact with, just as many of you have done over the past weeks. Now, that's not a new thought to most of you. Uh, Most of you have been in church all your lives, at least have been in church long enough to know that that to be the case. That makes sense to you that to display the principles of God's word uh, would draw people to him and would be the primary way for us to put action to the gospel in our daily lives. But sadly, that's not true of every believer. And I know that because of the time that James is spending here on making us aware of that, and also because many people in our day today don't have that awareness. Uh, There's a number of books out there today that try to train believers on how to do evangelism. Uh, If you go to your bookstore or go online and look for books on evangelism, you'll find all sorts of books on that. Uh, James cuts through all of that and simply says, live out God's word and people will see Jesus Christ in you. And that's evangelism. I know people want to make it more difficult than that. I think that's often the case because people want excuses for not doing it. And so they simply find a a more difficult way to make it happen. And they also want want the approach to be different uh, because being a Bible student in this day and age is no longer in style. Have you noticed that? Uh, Many Christians don't want to be Bible students. They want to be fed the Bible or maybe sit under the teaching, but they don't want to be students of the Word of God themselves. They want to be Christians in other ways. But being a student of the Word of God isn't on the list of what they want to do. So I'm going to make this as simplistic as possible because I'm a very simplistic person. Do you want to be a witness in your world? If you do, hear God's Word and do God's Word and remember God's Word. And that's all you need to do to be a witness for Jesus Christ and live out the gospel. Again, these folks are holding up signs on Wednesday evenings, and all on those signs is Scripture. But that scripture is enough, as we heard tonight, to convict people of their sin and make them aware that something's not right. It's just living out the word of God. That's all it takes. That's all that evangelism is. Now, what we've seen in these verses as we looked at them over the past couple of weeks, uh, James has, has identified some specific behaviors that should be part of our lives if we're going to live out the gospel. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw that we are to be slow to wrath. Uh, to put that in, those, in today's terms, we are to have a very, 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 very long fuse, is what James is saying. People should not see from us a routine display of anger as they have contact with us. I realize that is easier for some than for others, but it's a challenge for all of us from time to time. But that is what we need to do if we're going to show Jesus Christ to our world. Now, in verse 26, he gives us another one that's probably just as difficult, if not more. 
Verse 26 says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So the next thing he says here is, guard your tongue, watch your tongue. Now you are aware, if you know the book of James at all, he talks about this a lot. When we get into chapter 3, we're going to do a lot of discussion about the tongue. But here's so what he's doing here is simply introducing us to that topic. I want you to notice what the verse says. First of all, notice he says, if any man among you be, seem to be religious. He uses the word religious in, this con- in, in the context of what he's talking about. I'll look at verse 27. He says, pure religion. So he's talking about being religious and talking about religion. He wants his readers to be religious and to exercise proper religion. Now, if you've been in church like I have, especially in Baptist churches, what you've learned, and I believe this to be true, we who are followers of Jesus Christ don't participate in a religion. You don't, you're not following a religion. You're not here at a religious service tonight. That's not what this is. We participate not in a religion, but in a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. That's what, our, what, that's what we're all about. Now, that being the case, James' focus on this whole idea of religion is very interesting. If you want to identify the core of religion, religion is based on works. That's what religion, true religion, uh, classic religion, is all about. Uh, religion is based on works. Any religion that you identify has as its main focus living right and doing good to others. And in most religions, that is the process by which a person gets, makes it to heaven. James knows that's not how a person in this age makes it to heaven. He's aware of that. So why is he focused on this whole idea of religion? Well, again, consider who he is writing to uh, doctrinally. This letter is written to the 12 Jewish tribes who are going through the tribulation. And what is the main focus of their salvation? I hope you know this by now. It's based on the works that they do. That's what their religion is all about. In a past study, our past study in Matthew, we saw how Jesus Christ identified salvation as focused on caring for those who were in prison or who had no food or who had no clothing. That's, again, because he's talking to people going through the tribulation time, and that's what they need to do to make it through that time. The focus in the tribulation is going to be on religion, doing the work that God requires to gain salvation. And so James identifies four works that identify part of that tribulation salvation. I'll look at verses 26 and 27. Let me read these to you. Again, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In those two verses, you have the four behaviors that make up tribulation salvation. Have control over your tongue, care for the orphans, care for the widows, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Now, that's not all they must do, but it's four things they must do, and it's the basic foundation of the work they're going to do during the time of the tribulation. Now, what you know, but just to remind you, in this age, good works come as a result of your salvation and are not the means of your salvation. You should be involved in good works. You should be involved in good works because you know Jesus Christ as Savior. It is not the way you get saved. It's the after effect because you are saved. Uh, so when we look at these four things that James looked, that mentions here, he's talking about them as being a means of salvation. We can take a spiritual application and say these are four things we ought to do if we're going to show Jesus Christ to our world. These four behaviors must be a part of our life. So notice, first of all, verse 26 again, we are to bridle our tongues, bridle our tongues, a bridle. I know nothing at all about horses, except I don't like them. However, 
What I do know about horses is you put a bridle in the mouth of that horse and that directs them in the way they're supposed to go. In the same way, James says, bridle your tongue, control the direction of your words by bridling your tongue. James is adamant that we don't just talk to hear ourselves talk. James is clear, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, our words should have a specific purpose, and we control our tongues to prevent ourselves from saying things that we should not say that would cause harm to somebody else or harm the cause of Christ. Now, notice the consequence of those folks who choose not to bridle or control their tongues. Look at the verse again. He says that bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. Those folks who don't bridle their own tongues deceive themselves. They deceive themselves of what that verse says. If the person says they are religious, if they say they're doing good works or in our context, if they're being the presence of Jesus Christ to their world, but their tongues are out of control, they're deceiving themselves. They're not accomplishing what they think they're accomplishing. They are not displaying Jesus Christ to their world at all. A person whose tongue is out of control is not practicing the presence of Jesus Christ to their world. That's what he's saying in our context. Exactly what he's saying. And if they say that they are, they're lying to themselves when they say that. Now, the emphasis that God puts on our words could not be any clearer than what, from what James says. But then he gets even more blunt. Look at the end of the verse. He says, but deceiveth his own selves. This man's religion is vain. So if a person doesn't bridle their tongue, what he says is what you're trying to show out to the world is nothing but vain. It's vanity. It's nothing. That's what vanity means. It's simply nothing. That's the result. That's the result. A person can make all the profession in the world about how much they love the Lord and how dedicated they are to serving him and how much they're committed to living for him. But if that little muscle in their mouth is out of control, if they speak in ways that are contrary to the guidelines that God gives us in his word concerning our speech, none of their profession is having any positive effect whatsoever. That's what James is saying. And more than likely, because their tongue is out of control, they're doing more harm to the cause of Christ than they're doing any good. And that may seem harsh to you. That is just the tip of the iceberg. Wait till we get to chapter three. <laughs> You're going to see much more about that once we get there. So just chew on that for a while. When we get to chapter three, we'll bury you with it. All right. Look at verse 27. He says, pure religion and undefiled before God. It's an old story. I realize, but I just want to stop here and say God expects our religion, our lifestyle, our living out to be pure and undefiled. God expects how we live our lives before others should not be tainted by sin in any way. As the world's standards of behavior and conduct change, the Christian standards have changed as well. And that's a natural thing because we are so inundated by sinful behavior and practices of the world. It's very easy for those things to become part of what we do or at least color what we do. However, just because it is a natural thing doesn't mean that God accepts it or approves of it or is going to let you continue to do it. This world may go deeper and deeper and deeper into the cesspool of sin. God expects you and I to maintain a standard in spite of whatever else the world does. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. This is what John says, though, in 1 John 3.10. He says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Now just grab onto that for a few seconds. That person who does not do righteousness is not of God. Now again, in our context, John is not saying that those who don't do righteousness are not saved. What he's saying is those who don't do righteousness are not working out their salvation before others around them. And nobody knows about Jesus Christ because their lifestyle hides him. They can't see him. That's what he's saying. Nobody will see God in them if righteousness does not characterize their lives. 
And so if I want somebody to see Jesus Christ in my life, my life better be characterized by righteousness. And then he goes on to the next two works that are part of this whole idea of showing out Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27 again. A pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Here's the next two. Take care of the orphans and take care of the widows. That's what he says. Now, that word visit there is very interesting. I think we can take that word literally to mean that we should take time to go see those folks who are afflicted by not having parents or who have lost their spouses. And just to make this clear, that is not just the responsibility of the pastor or the pastoral staff. James doesn't make that qualification whatsoever. He's speaking to everybody who wants Jesus Christ to be seen in their lives. So ask yourself, when the last time you stopped to see somebody who lost a parent or somebody who has lost a spouse? When was the last time you made a call on somebody just to see how they were doing and just to see if you could do anything for them? Well, according to James, what he says here, if we haven't, we are not presenting pure and undefiled religion. We're allowing something to get in the way of what God's word commands us to do in order to demonstrate what Jesus Christ had done for others. But I think it goes up beyond just seeing them, just going and stopping by. I think we can visit those folks in all sorts of ways. We can visit them by providing something for them that they need. We can visit them by uh, going, taking them or going with them to some place they need or want to go. We can visit them by doing some chore for them or handling some household necessity for them. There's all sorts of ways to visit those who've lost somebody. Uh, we have a nursing home ministry here. You can go every other Friday night and fulfill what James is saying just by going to that nursing home and visiting the, the widows who are there in that place. There are children who attend our Good News Club. They have dads who are nowhere to be found. Man, listen to me. You can make an irreplaceable impression on those kids just by attending that good news club and just hanging out with those kids and talking to them because they have no man in their life doing that. You would make an enormous effect on them just by visiting those kids when they're in need because they have no fathers that they can look to uh, to be that person for them. All kinds of ways to do it. We need to look for ways to do it and not make excuses for not doing it. (laughs) Find ways to do it instead. But here's the principle behind what, Paul, what, what uh, James is saying here. People see Jesus Christ when they experience his compassion from somebody else. People will know that you know Jesus Christ when they see his compassion demonstrated through you. Now, he uses orphans and widows as the examples but they, because they are obviously in need of compassion. But in reality, folks, you live in an increasingly compassionless world. <laughs> There's not a lot of compassion out there. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but it's not out there very often. Uh, and so if they, people see compassion, they're going to take note of that and respond to that person who shows the love of Jesus Christ to them while they're hurting or in need in some way. Every person that you meet is a candidate for a demonstration of compassion. Because <laughs> they don't get it anywhere else in, in most cases. So ask yourself, in your interactions with other people, above all else, do they experience the compassion of Jesus Christ through you? And I'm not talking just about the church body, although they should experience here for sure. But I mean outside of this place to those people who aren't real easy to show compassion to when people try to run you over and so forth. Show them compassion because they need to see Jesus Christ and what they need to see. And that's what they're fighting. They don't want to see him. And that's who they need to see. And they'll see that as we demonstrate his compassion to them. If they don't see it, again, our religion is not bearing the fruit that God wants it to bear. Now, go to verse 27 again and look at the final behavior that James focuses in on. He says, and to keep himself unspotted 
from the world. Now look at that verse. Keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, we've talked about this an awful lot. I'm not going to go through it all again today. Uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago in Jude 40, uh, 23, rather, that uh, he made the same comment there. He said, don't be spotted by the flesh. Here's what I want to emphasize to you. We are not even to be spotted by the world. Not even be spotted by the world. If the world does it, if the world values it, if the world approves of it, if the world promotes it, we should go as far as possible in the other direction. And I mean that. Amen, amen, amen. That's the truth. <laughs> There's this new wave in the church that I'm really not comfortable with. Uh, they don't get involved with the world. They just stay a step or two behind it. They stay outside the world, but as the world moves, they sort of just move on with it. And I want to emphasize, we are not to be even spotted by the world. You see, as the world goes farther and farther into depravity, there are those in the church who go along with it, just not as far. They follow with the world. They just don't get involved with it. So a believer can watch R-rated movies, just not the really bad ones. A believer can drink alcohol, but only in moderation. A believer can smoke, just not inhale. A believer can use the language of the world, just not the really bad words. You see what I'm saying? Unspotted from the world means go in the opposite direction from whatever the world's doing. Get away from it. In the next two or three years, the believer is going to be doing things that the world's doing now. Because by then the world would have moved on to something more horrible. And the believers are just going to keep up behind, but just keep up. You see what I'm saying? Uh, James and John tell us this. The true approach for a believer is to be unspotted from the world and not spotted by the flesh. That's what James and John both tell us. Our lives should show no characteristics of the world whatsoever. Our church services should show none of the characteristics of the world whatsoever. Let me show you something. Go to Second Peter chapter, First Peter chapter two. Go to First Peter chapter two. If this doesn't make the point to our hearts, I don't think anything will. That's not the verse I want. I can't, I'm not surprised. Satan doesn't want you to see this. Let me. Uh-huh. I'm looking for the verse that talks about the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. 119. Thank you. 119. First Peter 119. Yes, that's it. Uh, look at verse 18. Let's start there. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Watch it. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter is speaking of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. And notice the requirement. That requirement was he as a lamb must be without blemish and without spot. Now, if Jesus took the approach that the modern churchgoer takes, he would have allowed a sin or two, as long as he didn't go fully into the sin. And he would have seen that as good enough because he's not as bad as some of the other folks. And had he done that, his sacrifice would have been worthless and you and I would be on our way to hell. He had to be unspotted to be that sacrificial lamb that we needed. And in the same way, we are to be unspotted from the world if as 
As Jude says, we are to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. We have to assume what that means is there can be no indication of the world or of the flesh anywhere on us. Just as Jesus Christ was spotless in terms of sin, we also must be spotless in terms of our contact with the world. And if we aren't, what James is telling us here is our religion, our outward manifestation of Jesus Christ is going to be impure and undefiled, and it will limit the number of people that see Jesus Christ in us as a result, and therefore it will limit the number of people who are drawn to him as a result. Folks, let me tell you something. I hope you know this, but I'm going to remind you tonight because I think we all need reminded. The world is not your friend. The people in the world are not your people. The customs and the activities of the world are not your lifestyle. That's the truth. The world is not your friend. The people of this world are not your people. And the customs and the activities of the world are not your lifestyle. And I don't think God can make it any more clear to us. And our effect on eternity is dependent upon how seriously we take what James is telling us here. And with all that said, James is now going to start meddling a bit. Go to chapter 2. James chapter 2. I remember many years ago, our youth pastor did a series on James. And what he said to us over and over as he did that study was that the real message of James is that our faith in Jesus Christ and our commitment to Jesus Christ is shown by how we treat the next person who walks in the back door of that church. That's how you're going to demonstrate Jesus Christ. How do you treat the person who walks into this place who's never been here before? How do you treat him? How, what, what, what happens? I remember him saying that consistently over and over as we went through that study. That is how people are going to see Jesus Christ in us practically, by how we treat them when they walk into this place, how we treat them when we meet them on the street somewhere. So that is the overriding theme of this chapter. And with that in, uh, as a kind of a, a beginning, look at verse 1. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And James just won't stop. He just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into meddling into our lives. <laughs> now, notice the first thing he says. He talks about the Lord of glory. And that is a contrast to somebody you might meet on earth. The idea is expressed in this question. How could we be impressed with anything that a person has here? When we, by faith, are joint heirs with the Lord of glory. <laughs> How can you be impressed by anything this world offers to you when you are a joint heir with the Lord of glory? What a person possesses down here, no matter how great it is, no matter how much it is worth, can't even begin to compare with what he has for us and with what we possess as a result. Can't even compare. Not even close. There are people who are fascinated by how much a person's house is worth, how much their car is worth, how much they have in the bank. No matter how much that sum is, folks, uh, for us, it's like finding coins in the couch <laughs> when you compare it to what we possess as God's children. So the first point James makes as he starts into this meddling process is to let us know that for a child of God to have any interest at all in what a person down here possesses is missing who you belong to. Sure. You belong to the Lord of glory <laughs> and everything he has is yours. Now. There are believers who are impressed by those things. They're impressed by what a person wears or what they own and so forth. And what James does in verse 2 and 3 is give an example of what that looks like when a believer does that. Look at verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> he says, For if there come in unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, 
and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Now, what he says, notice verse 2 again, he talks about somebody coming into the assembly. Uh, in this context, that is not talking about a church service. What James is speaking of here in the Jewish context is a meeting at the synagogue. And in particular, it's a, it's a meeting where some business must be conducted or some decision must be made. And in this meeting, there's both poor people and rich people coming in, and they all have input into the decision that's going to be made by going through this meeting and deciding what course of action should be taken. They all have an equal say, all have equal influence. So what James says is two men walk into this assembly. One man has a gold ring. He's wearing goodly apparel. In verse 3, he's described as wearing gay clothing. I hate how the world has destroyed our language uh, and polluted what, what we talk about. What he's talking about there with gay clothing is a reference to somebody wearing splendid clothing, very rich-looking clothing. He's not talking about somebody wearing clothing that demonstrates an immoral lifestyle. That's not what he's talking about. So this fellow is wearing a good, goodly raiment, a gay clothing. He's wearing splendid clothing. He also has this gold ring, which would immediately indicate that he's a rich person. And the clothing that he wears identifies him in that way as well. Now, another fellow walks in. He's not dressed the same way, not nearly dressed so well. James says he is dressed in vile raiment. What that means is, in our vernacular, those clothes have seen better days. You know that shirt that you want your husband to throw away? It's that kind of stuff. <laughs> that, that, that particular shirt. shirt you might wear to do a work project or paint in. That's what he's talking about. These are not clothes that a person would wear to a meeting, but that's all this fellow has to wear. He's wearing that because that's all he's got. So these two men walk into this meeting. James proposes, how should you respond to those two people? How should you react? Well, apparently there are some in that room who would see the rich man and immediately usher him to a better place in the house, a better seat in the house. They might lead him up to the front where everybody could see him and be impressed by the kind of people that joined those assemblies. Uh, that's the sort of people we want to be identified with because they, we want them to be a part of our group because they're influential and they have a lot. Uh, so it's a distinguishing mark to have those there, those folks there. What do they do with the other guy? Put him in a corner somewhere. Put him in a dark space where nobody can see him. Kind of stick him in the back where nobody's going to observe him. They don't want anybody to think that those kinds of people represent the group that they are involved in and the assembly that's making these decisions. Now, I know we don't like to admit this, but what James describes is how human nature is. <laughs> and we might want to say it's not true, but it is true. It is true. And that's why he's identifying it for us. Uh, we want to be identified with those folks who would be seen as successful. And we don't want to be identified with people who seem ordinary and commonplace or unsuccessful. And so James gives his assessment in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Now, what he says, if you do this, if you have that kind of regard for these two men, are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Two behaviors that result from somebody who does what James talks about in verses 2 and 3. First, he says they are partial in themselves. They have set divisions between people based solely on how they look and what they wear. And God made it clear to Samuel, a very familiar verse, I'm sure, when he was seeking a king uh, to replace Saul. He said, man looketh on the outward appearance. And that's true. People look on the outward appearance and they separate people into categories based upon how they look. Now, we have to be careful with that. Uh, since man does look on the outward appearance, we should not do anything with our outward appearance that reflect, reflect poorly on Jesus Christ. We considered this a couple of weeks ago. All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want to and dress however I want to dress and look however I want to look. 
and nobody ha- has any right to say anything about that, and that's true. However, all things are not expedient. If I look a certain way, or if what I wear detracts from my testimony and causes others to question my witness, then I must change those things to coincide with what I profess to believe, what I profess to be. And by the way, if we're serious about this thing, if we ask God to reveal to us, if there's anything about our appearance that is detracting people from Jesus Christ, he'll show it to you. He'll make you very aware of it. I guarantee you of that. Then you've got to decide what you're going to do with that. What's happening, however, in James's example is some people in that room have assessed the value or the worth of somebody based on what they wear or how much money they make. And they've decided one person has more value to the group than the other person simply because they present the appearance of having greater wealth. And, of course, that is simply ridiculous. I've known many people in my life who didn't have a great deal materially, but they were some of the smartest, most insightful people I've ever met. One of our youth leaders when I was growing up in our youth department was a mailman. He was about as basic, about as ordinary a guy as you're ever going to meet. He became our first camp caretaker when, we per- when the church purchased a youth camp. Now, we might not call this a professional promotion, but he went from being a mailman to being a camp caretaker. If we base it on that alone, we would have to decide, as we look at this guy, he has nothing to offer but brute force. That's all he's worth. I want to tell you something. That man had more common sense and more godly wisdom than almost anybody I've ever met. Had I based my interactions with him solely on his profession and level of education, I would have missed learning so much from him. He was a great influence in my life. By the way, his first name was Bud. Doesn't that kind of say it all? (laughs) Good guy. Good guy. Mary, you probably remember him. So the first problem in doing what James is talking about here is that it creates division. It sets up somebody as more valuable than somebody else simply because of their income level and how they look. Notice the second problem. Look at verse 4 again. Are you then not uh, partial in yourselves? And secondly, become judges of evil thoughts. By giving this rich person a better place in the meeting, what they're saying is he's more spiritual, he's more in touch with God than the poor man is. And the only basis for that assessment is how much money they have, how much wealth they've accumulated. Now, we've already discussed, uh, I think a, la- a few lessons ago, uh, how that in this period of time before the cross, people believed that rich people were more spiritual and closer to God than poor people were. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 19. Go back to Matthew chapter 19. Let me give, give one example of this. Matthew chapter 19. And look at verse uh, 23. I'm going to check to make sure this is the right verse. Yeah. Matthew 19:23 then Jesus said unto, uh, then said Jesus unto his disciples verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven and again I say unto you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye, through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God now that shouldn't seem surprising to us but look at those disciples reactions when his disciples heard it they were exceeding amazed saying who then can be saved <laughs> What they're saying is, if a rich person can't make it to heaven, who can make it to heaven? Because rich people at that time were assessed to be the most spiritual people in the society. They were amazed at the Lord's teaching regarding the spirituality of rich people. So the people in James' meeting would give a higher position to that rich person because of this belief that rich people are naturally more spiritual. Again, man looks on the outward appearance. So in our day, we look at somebody who's been blessed And we say to ourselves, because they've been so blessed, they must be more spiritual than me. 
If I don't have all they have, they must be more spiritual because God seems to be blessing them more than they're blessing me. They must be more favored by God. Amazing how we make all sorts of assessments of a person's spirituality based on what we observe from the outside. Got to be very careful about that. Be very careful assessing somebody's spirituality based upon only what you see. Uh, James' lesson to us is we should never do that. We cannot assess motives or spirituality by outward appearance. I want to tell you something, and you, you, you know this stuff. There are many people who attend a church service on Sunday morning. They attend the church service every Sunday, and they're probably some of the least spiritual people you could ever meet. They just go through the form, and they have the motion. They just don't have any heart to it. And there are people who are unable to attend church services regularly because they have some physical reason that they can't be here, and they keep their life in better spiritual order than the person who attends every service every week. You see, it can't be based on appearance. It can't be based on what we see. Now, certainly that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Uh, we'll consider what James is, is writing about even, even uh, greater detail as we move on. But here's the takeaway that I want to give you tonight as we wrap things up. Believer, maintain your own spiritual health and don't worry about anybody else's. Just take care of you. You know what I found? I found that I'm a full-time job. <laughs> Just keeping me under control spiritually is all that I can manage. And so I'm going to assume that the same is true of you as well. And so what James is saying to us is, don't worry about the spirituality of everybody else. Just take care of your own spirituality. And if you see somebody who you feel is, is wavering spiritually, you have the right to talk to them about that. You have the right to pray for them. You have no right to judge them. That's between them and God. We need to work on our relationship with the Lord and let others do the same and assume they will. But we should never favor anybody because we think they are more spiritual based solely on their outward appearance. In fact, what James is really saying here is we shouldn't favor anybody over somebody else. <laughs> that should never be what we do, no matter what context we're in. Uh, every person out there is a lost soul who needs Jesus Christ. That's all they are. They're nothing more, nothing less. I don't care how much money they have, how much money they don't have. They're just a soul who needs Jesus Christ all on the same level. When you walk in here, all you're with in this place is a group of saved sinners. That's all we are. <laughs> Uh, nothing more, nothing less. You may have more than I do. Uh, I may have more than you do. That makes no difference because in God's economy, you're just a saved sinner with the glory of God uh, waiting for you when Jesus Christ comes back. That's what you are. And that's enough. <laughs> but if we do anything more than that, we put our, make ourselves judges and we put ourselves in God's place. And Paul tells us when you do that, what you're doing is inviting God's judgment on yourself. So don't judge anybody else as far as spirituality goes. Just take care of you. Let them take care of themselves and let God take care of the whole thing. I guarantee you he can handle it <laughs> and we'll be much better off for it. All right, let's stand.